This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Alison McLeod, welcome to Better Reading. Thanks so much, Cheryl. It's really, really nice to be here. So Alison's coming to us all the way from Brighton in the UK. She's a Canadian-British author of novels The Changeling, The Wave Theory of Angels and Unexploded, which was long-listed for the Booker Prize in 2013. She has also published short stories and was joint winner of the British Library Writers Award in 2016. Her latest novel, Tenderness, is about D.H. Lawrence and the writing and trial of the controversial novel Lady Chatterley's Lover. Welcome, Alison. What a beautiful, beautiful novel. Oh, Cheryl, thank you so much. That really means a lot. Mm, it's really tender, <laughs> which is, is in the title. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay, now, so long-listed for the booker. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a big, big year. Yeah, oh. it, was, it was transformative. Yeah, it doesn't happen in many lifetimes, does it? No, no, it's 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 an amazing thing. It changes things overnight. You get a, an email around midnight and um, the next day life will never quite be the same again. It's a, a, it's a glorious thing and it's a, a bit of a tsunami coming at you as well, even for the long list. Mm. And it absolutely changes book sales for your publisher and um People you meet, invitations, it's 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 a gift. It's an absolute gift. Yeah, it's quite significant because it does have worldwide recognition and the calibre of entries are very, very high. Yeah, it, it's. I think there are about 150 and that's the publisher putting through their own mm. nominations, their own, you know, their own sifting down. Mm-hmm. So um, I had no idea that my book had been entered that year even. So I was in a great age of innocence and it just seemed at the very, at the moment when when really I I, um, I could have used that I really needed it at that point and it I, I want to talk to you about that uh, about how you came to writing sorry to interrupt there so go back because I think in a way to be a writer you know, you always think you need to get a break at some point. You know, you need to get a break in that you find an agent. You need to get a break as in you find a publisher. But even when you have a publisher and you have an agent and you're writing and your books are being well received, it is wonderful to have another break in terms of being winning a prize or a shortlist or a yeah, long list. It really is. And you, you keep, um, you when when you're not published, you know, when uh, when you're waiting for that, moment and that interest from a publisher first of all it's the interest as you say from an agent then you're waiting just to be published and you think you do you you imagine that's all you could ever want and you get to that place and of course it's it's a privilege and it's exciting and and also in my case I was still young 
And so um, it all seems, you know, you, suddenly glorious reviews were coming in for my first book. And, and in a way, you take it for granted. But then you learn that actually the writing life is a, is a long game. And partly staying in the game, I, I don't mean it's a game, but in, in these terms, uh, staying there, st- holding your place, sustaining interest, sustaining readers is, is a huge thing. <laughs> so not, not to put anyone off, but the bar keeps getting higher and higher, if you like. And that's not something I think I would have been aware of at the outset. So um, nominations, shortlistings, reviews, reviews are obviously huge, but they're not everything, it, especially in this day and age. We've got so many books coming at us that for someone to reach for yours is, um, you know, it is, it's a privilege. Do you know, I always say it's about finding the readers, the reader for that book. And what we do at Better Reading, I think we do quite well, is trying to match the reader with the writer to give that introduction. Um, Do you write full time? I I do now. Um, I, uh, for years and years, in fact, up until 2018, I was spinning a lot of plates, mostly as a lecturer um, and a university professor which I suppose, again, when I was younger, I imagined there must come a point when you get to a certain point of seniority when, you know, you're allowed to go for pub lunches and you're allowed to slightly, um, you know, rest on your laurels a bit. And that's what I saw my senior colleagues do when I was younger. By the time I got there, higher education had changed entirely and everyone constantly at every level was working flat out. So, Cheryl, technically, I was working um, what's called a not 0.5 contract, a half-time contract, but I was working full-time, weekends, nights. And so I was writing, for example, Unexploded, my last novel. You know, I'm, I'm slightly ashamed to say it. It's slightly freakish, but I, you know, I would not not write. And so I was writing until two in the morning, three in the morning. By the end of that book... I, mean, I might not be teaching. I wouldn't. I certainly wouldn't be driving the next morning. But I might be working from home. I might be marking at a certain point. So by the end of that novel, I was. Um, you know, the sun was coming up, and it might have been very end. It was eight in the morning, mm. and I, fin- I literally have had tears coming down my face when I finished Unexploded. And I think I got down. I don't know why. It's a mad thing to do, but I remember was getting down onto the floor, you know, sort of almost like uh, you know, t- pressing my forehead to the floor yeah. and a kind of, you know, thanks to the gods, the writing gods. Um, and I, I remember the postman coming to the door and because I'm also, you know, PhDs in my academic life and I, I must have looked slightly, no, more than slightly mad, disheveled, probably quite pale and he sort of said, oh, Dr. McLeod, you know, did you have a long night? You know, he's imagining the emergency rooms. And I, and I just said, <laughs> I did. Yes, actually, I did. Uh, you know, and I let him, I let him believe I was a, a noble doctor rather than a kind of crazy writer <laughs> working until eight in the morning. No, a noble doctor rather than a crazy doctor. Yes, yeah. I wanted to be really virtuous. I'm not sure writers always qualify for that. <laughs> That's very funny. Hey, go back. So were you born in Canada? I was. I was born in Canada. Um, I've got a very sort of mixed up accent. And that's probably because, well, we um, shortly after I was born, we moved to the States. 
Um, we lived in Michigan for my first nine years. And what I, were you doing there? Um, well, my father was uh, my father had been uh, a journalist in Canada and editor, and then he was in that era when uh, copywriting was opening up, advertising was opening up, and he was sort of plucked into that era of what we now think of as Mad Men and brought down to the States to um, head an advertising or a copywriting department. And we grew up there. So I knew, you know, in those days, you know, you know your Pledge of Allegiance. Um, I was born just the year, you know, almost a year directly after the Kennedy assassination. So all of those faces that some of them, some of which appear in my novel were, were faces that were always on the television, or on the radio. Even even I have a vague recollection of Hoover, J. Edgar Hoover, and the posters with his face putting out warnings of one kind or another. So my we were there for nine or ten years, and we moved. My parents wanted to move back to Canada, and we were in Montreal for a couple of years, and Nova Scotia. I always had the the strongest accent of of each place I moved to. I think I've got a sort of spongy ear. And then when I was um, just 22, I came over, having done my BA in Canada, I thought I was just coming for a year or two to do my master's. And um, life sort of took hold. I met my future husband. Um, we're now divorced, Sally, but we're still fantastic friends. And um, and, and sort of life, my, my adult life unfolded here. So your father was a writer, so I guess the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Is that right? I, I, I think we're quite a writing family. Even those of us who don't write professionally can absolutely write. So there's, I, I guess it's like a musical ear that some families have. I imagine certainly books were really important growing up. They were special things. We, you know, if you gave a book at Christmas, you always signed it because it was, you know, sort of special. Oh, wow. That's lovely. Special thing. And and my father's books, even once my father died, you know, what we did with his books, that was a huge discussion. So my brother's a journalist. Um, my uh, another sister who's has sometimes written. And I would say my siblings are better at perhaps writing the pithy birthday card than I am. I think I overthink it <laughs> being 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 the novelist amongst us. But I came to England partly because I wanted to re, uh, wanted to meet just other people my age who were trying to do the same thing. I was from a family of journalists, even going back to my something of my grandfather's generation. And I didn't know anyone who was sort of essentially making it up or dreaming it up. And I wanted to make contact with those people. So I looked at an MA in Canada and I looked at an MA over here and I came very close to the one in Canada. I was offered a full fellowship. It, it was with um, the writer... Alistair MacLeod and it, oh. it, it would in you know, no, no relation although we're probably from the same bit of Nova Scotia MacLeods um, if we go back far enough and he wrote me a really generous letter and he said you know we're really looking forward to having you it was so kind and he said but if you have this offer from England he said I know that I know the program I know the person who runs it he's a good person he's a good man a good writer and he said I think I think it's good for a writer to travel. And so partly because of Alistair MacLeod that, that I'm here, you know, I, everyone else said, oh, you're mad to turn down a full fellowship and instead to take on a massive, well, it felt to me at the time, I mean, it was, I think, seven years paying off mm -hmm. a student loan when I'd never 
you know, I'd always either worked in the summer or perhaps had scholarships. I, you know, I'd never had to strain in that particular way. I, you know, I did work hard all summer and save for tuition. Um, and then the rest got me through on scholarship. But I, I, you know, suddenly being saddled with debt. But I just thought it's worth it. So you're one of those unusual writers who always knew that you were going to be a writer? I'm glad you say it's unusual because I, I, I know so many writers and I, I, I honestly think it is. And it's something of the cliched story. I don't know if I always knew I was going to be one, but I always wanted to be one. And, I, and then, I, I mean, from the time I was little, I remember quite a, uh, almost a, an epiphanic moment when I was about three years old, when it was really, I, I remember having um, a copy of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, just an individual story. It was sort of uh, tall, a big, you know, big, I don't know, for, if I was little, it was about half, half the height of me. And it, and it was her shape sort of cut out. And, it, and so that made it feel quite lifelike. But I just had such a sense that once I opened those covers, it hummed that there was life inside, that you could open the covers and open the life, close the covers and close the life. And I remember just how, standing with it and having such a profound sense that that was humming with life and a kind of, what I later felt was a kind of magic. And I've never, ever lost that sense. Then, then you get to a certain age, you've done all your, you know, you've done all your studying and then I did my BA in English. And, and there's never a sense, at least not in my era, that when you're studying, you know, the greats, as we did at that time, that you would, you could ever conceive of putting yourself among, among them, you know, daring to do what they did. So there was no encouragement. There were no writing classes that were available then, not to a BA student, certainly. You know, but I do remember finishing at the age of 20, 20, 21 and thinking, right, you know, you've been telling yourself all your life, this is privately and sometimes to a few people, this is what you want to do. Now you've got to put your money where your mouth is. How are you going to do it? I remember being on a bus. I can remember exactly where I was when I had that thought you know, coming back from a summer job and just thinking, what's your life going to be? And are you going to, are you going to make a play for it? Are you going to gamble? And it was a gamble. It's, it's still a gamble. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM 
for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. So for you, being on that path, because I've spoken to so many writers and so many of them, it was a thought and it was a maybe and life got in the way and then they started writing and, you know, and they're all different paths. But for you, that was a very, I mean, a, a young age really to start thinking seriously, I'm going to write. Did you then think I'm going to write fiction, I have a story, and then you're going to apply the craft to that story? Or was it that you had the craft and you had to come up with a storyline? I don't think I even had the craft, if I'm honest. I mean, I, you know, I've been studying and I think I have maybe more than I credited myself with. I think it's also a confidence thing, Mm. Um, you know, with, you know, and it goes on being a confidence thing, but I'd read a lot. And so what I think I had done was absorbed a lot by osmosis almost, but I didn't, you know, I now realize I absorbed, but if someone had, said to me, what makes a good opening page? I would have drawn a complete blank at the age of 21. I I, I really would have been speechless. So I didn't have a a conscious sense of the craft. I didn't um, know what I wanted to write about. I felt rather, and I, I, you know, I, I was in some ways. I mean, it's not that I hadn't seen things and seen complexities of people, but shaping that into a story was you know again not something I really knew how to do I didn't know I had anything to say but what I knew was that it was that it was for me a form of magic or telepathy you send your thoughts out of 20 inches 20 inch circumference of your head across huge distances if you're lucky and across time and that seemed to me just such a a magical thing a, a an amazing thing. I wanted to be able to do it. And my desire, I'm, I'm stubborn. And I actually knew more than I thought I knew. But I am stubborn above all. And the desire, I think desire take desire is an indication of what you can do. Mm. There's a, a young Australian Sudanese writer called Majok Tulba. He was a refugee and then he spent, he uh, came from the Sudan to Australia and very, very long journey through through camps. And if you ask him about time, he can't even remember how long that journey was. But he talks about story and, and this is just going back to what you were saying. So for him, storytelling was storytelling. It was oratory. It was telling stories out loud. And when he got to a camp eventually and saw a written book, like saw a book that actually was an object, he thought what happened, because he was quite young at the time, is somebody put a computer to your head and the book came out. Wow. wow. And it goes back to what you're saying, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It it, 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 it is as if it's this sort of magical or talismanic object mm. that downloads into your brain and, and you know, today's, today's terminology or you know or or we send we send from mind to mind from spirit to spirit across distance and I, I you know I, I will never cease to be moved by that and I will never cease to want to write for that reason alone I think I also began to take comfort in realizing that I don't know what I need to say when I embark on something that partly a novel or any any short stories about asking questions of things and being fascinated. So 
I begin with the fascination. And to some extent, you learn what you think by actually exploring the subject, but I don't need to know. And in that way, I don't need to know at the outset. The story is telling itself to me, even as I'm telling it to the reader. And for me, that gives it a live frisson, you know, a live energy that I am also um, receiving the story in some way. And it does feel, it's, it sounds, you know, unconscious of, and I don't want to sound too flaky or too uh, mystical or, or mad, but for me, there, there's always a sense that the story is work is working with you or perhaps even using you as a sort of vessel uh, or an instrument of its expression. And that your job is to serve the story, not to serve ego, but not to serve the story, to give it what it need, needs and to be the best possible writer you can be to give that to the page. Tell me about your first book, your publishing experience. Like, how did that happen for you? Did you find an agent? Um, how, how did that process work for you? Um, I did my, my my master's over here, and I uh, it was a master's in creative writing. So I, I went to find other writers of about my age, and I did. There were we were just a few. We were only four on the yeah. on the on the course. So it was tiny, and it was at the very you know, there weren't programs hardly at all in England. There was Lancaster where I went, there was UEA, and that was about it in terms of masters. And I felt like the most inexperienced of the four of us others had started to write. So again, you can you can always be measuring yourself. And and I think I did, but I just thought, ne- um, never mind, stay just stay humble and learn. Um, we were not taught as such. All we did was meet as writers with the tutor, who was a much more experienced writer, almost leading us in a kind of apprenticeship through workshops, saying very little, actually. He was quite zen, saying very little compared to what I now know is, is taught and said on many writing courses today. We had almost no instruction, but it was just the act of turning up and of committing and of carving out that space, um, almost a sort of charmed circle of, of a year or a year and a half when you're allowed to say, I am a writer, and for that to be taken very seriously. So that was almost it. And everyone turning up and really turning each other's work inside out and looking at how there's never anything, any greater question of how does life take life on the page? How do you do that? So that was always the, the focus and, and nothing more complicated than that and nothing less complicated than that. Then um, at the end of that year, I mean, I'd been submitting and I'd had, you know, short stories coming back, coming back, coming back and the big fat envelopes of those days and landing with a thud. Um, and, you know, that was such a, a rite of passage that one has to go through. And I think, uh, let's see, I, I had a short story that didn't win, but I think it was runner-up in, in a significant competition over here. And then I think I, I remember, still remember the check for £10. Uh, I, was, I was over the moon and my, student, my fellow students and I, we went for pizza at Pizza Express on that £10 and a bad bottle of red wine. And it seemed so exciting. Then I had another short story in a slightly bigger one, and that one, again, a runner-up, and that one uh, led to a phone call from um, my first agent who said, um, what else do you have? What else do you have? So I had other short stories, 
and I had started on my first novel. I probably was about 100 pages in. Um, at that point, I was unusually lucky in that he took it to Macmillan Picador. Um, I happened to find the absolute perfect editor for me at that point in life she, um, called Katie Owen. And she she bought it uh, um, more or less uh, with, within a day or two. So it suddenly again, uh, and life life turned in. I think it, so. That would have been about two, you think, two and a half years after arriving in England. Mm. I, and I remember going to the office that day, the Macmillan Picador Building, to meet her. And it was partly I knew, even though no one had spelled it out to me, that you've got to work with this person very closely, and. There has to be trust and there has to be a rapport and there even has to be a kind of chemistry. And, and I remember telling myself, it's sort of where I felt my parents' sanity coming through me and a little bit of grounding and just telling myself that even if this doesn't go well, I am still fine and onward I go. That, that as much as my writing is part of me, it still isn't for me mm. and it was a good thing to tell myself. And I've had to tell myself that at different points along the way. You have to remind yourself that it is in many ways everything to you, but it still can't be everything to you. There's still you. You've got to stay standing and stay resilient. You've mm. got to have a strong core so that you don't get beaten around by the weather vane of publishing. Yeah. And also, too, that you keep living to tell stories. I mean, you know. Yes, you've got to stay alive. You've got to stay in the present. Yes. You've got to occupy your life as a life. Mm. Tell me, how did tenderness come about? Oh, wow. Um, well, tenderness uh, has been about six years in the making. Um, I had another short story collection out in the midst of that. And I was teaching, as I was describing, uh, really full time. And life's too frenetic, but I, I, I had long been interested in the story of Lady Chatterley um, in that novel. But, you know, I've been interested in many, many, many novels. And I knew about the 1960 trial and I had always thought, what an amazing thing. God, a trial for a book, a trial that drew the attention of the world all for a novel. I, f I still find that remarkable. Uh, I knew about that, but at the same time, I think I featured a tiny, tiny bit of it in one of my short stories I did in the last collection. But I thought, that's it. That's all I'm ever going to do with it because we all know, you know, we know the outcome. Uh, it's it's in a Philip Larkin poem. We, we all know it turned out well. So there's no story to tell. Then I discovered in 2015, I think, I came across a freedom of information request to the FBI. It wasn't my freedom of information request, I hasten to add, it was someone else's, for which I will always be grateful. And uh, in that freedom of information request, part of the harvest of that was a telegram sent by the FBI asking for one of its operators, one of its agents, in the Midwest, in a Chicago field office. So this was coming out of Washington, DC. They didn't choose one of their own agents. They choose somebody conveniently afar to acquire discreetly a copy of the controversial novel for analysis by the FBI lab. And I just sat back and I thought, oh my God, 
what on earth was the FBI interested in Lady Chatterley for? How on earth? And then I subsequently discovered telegrams from J. Edgar Hoover himself, where he was looking over the case of the publication of the unexpurgated Chatterley. He was overseeing that quite obsessively himself. The FBI was collecting every newspaper cutting about it. And I thought, God, this is the middle of the Cold War. What on earth was their interest? So then at that point, when for me, a, a story, but also uh, we scaled it up, the level of a novel, uh, a novel comes into being when at least two incongruous things come together. Two things you think that thing and that thing could never be part of the same story. And when you discover the truth that they are, then I think there's my novel, there's a story. That's something I never would have dreamt of. And I was immediately fascinated. Uh, so that those are the early beginnings. I then spent, oh gosh, I've spent months and I spent weeks literally in archives, months, months and years with documents um, from both the 1959 American hearing for Grove Press, actually the first publisher, the first English, English language publisher trying to publish the uncensored edition of the book uh, in 1959 in the States. And they were uh, brought up on charges and heard through the, the general post office. We're trying to ship the book through the post. So became fascinated with those documents um, and to an even greater and, and you know, much, yeah, almost never ending extent, the paperwork from the trial of Penguin Books, the famous obscenity trial for Lady Chatterley in London in 1960. So of course, by this point, Lawrence himself is long gone. He died in 1930. The book was originally written 1926 to 1928. He wasn't able to publish it with Martin Secker, his usual publisher. Uh, Secker thought it was too great a risk unless he censored it. So Lawrence being brilliantly stubborn, and passionate about it. And this is, and he's dying. He's also dying, which I find so, so moving. And yet he's throwing every inch of his energy and life, the last bits of his life, his last breath, into getting that book out in 1928, privately published. What do you think he would think of tenderness? Oh, God. Oh, wow. I haven't even, I've, I don't think I've ever thought, no, I thought about it because a friend of mine, um, a poet friend from Nottingham who grew up in Nottingham, Vicky Fever, is a brilliant poet. She wrote me and she said, Lawrence would be so proud of this book. And that's, of course, she's a friend and she's very biased towards me. So <laughs> we, must, we must bear that in mind. Um, the only thing I can think, I, I have no idea. I, I hope he, I show him in um, all of his complexity. He's got his dark sides. Which I think he he was he would admit to. I don't think he was trying to hide that. You know, he, he didn't hide them enough actually. Um, but he did say, well, E.M. Forster, who knew him a bit, said that what Lawrence would really want, knew he would have to wait for, is for uh, this book to be taken up by the young, mm. that it would go beyond his generation before it could be appreciated. So I, I like to think that he might think it was, it was okay that I was one of that generation 
who responded to it, who understood it maybe as he intended it and who was very grateful for it. So above all, I think my novel is in, uh, an homage to Chatterley and also to Lawrence for all of his flaws. God, he was brilliant. He was so bold. I, I'm full of admiration for his daring, for what he risked and for his passion of throwing everything into that book. His la- not his last book, but his last novel. And novels for him were, the, he said, the one bright book of life, the one bright book of life. So um, I hope he... I, I hope he'd be curious at least. Oh, absolutely. Alison, thank you so much for your time today. I have so enjoyed our conversation. Cheryl, thank you. It's It's been a privilege to do and uh, uh, I'm so touched really just by your question. So thank you. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.